Welcome to episode 49 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Ingrid Farrow, an Old Testament scholar, about what the Bible teaches about evil and how we can face it in our world. It's a conversation in which you might learn some new things about the book of Genesis. I certainly did. And also one that offers thoughtful pastoral guidance on what facing evil really means. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, thanks for tuning in. If you have doubts, it does no good to push them away and pretend like they're not there. You have to deal with them, wrestle with them, and test them. In this sense, doubt, if it involves true questioning and searching for the truth, can be a key part of the process of faith. One of the reasons that we know this is because we can find some of the most potent questions on the lips of the most devoted followers of God in the Bible. Think, for example, of the book of Job. Job's complaint is stunning in its honesty and its refusal to look away from the hard questions, especially about evil and suffering. Scripture doesn't just allow us to ask questions, it also supplies us with language for our questions. When it comes to the presence and pervasiveness of evil in our world, however, there are no easy answers. But this doesn't mean that there are no answers. The Bible actually has a lot to say about evil. Its emphasis, however, is not where we might expect. It focuses less on where evil comes from and how we can explain it, and more on our responsibility to reckon with it, to resist it, to refuse to allow evil to define us, and how we can join God's mission to reverse and redeem evil's devastations. This is the argument, at least, of our guest, Dr. Ingrid Farrow. She has written a bracingly personal and deeply biblical account of evil in the Bible. I've had the pleasure of knowing Ingrid two decades, and she lives and has lived what she teaches. She has faced evil and suffering firsthand, and now she seeks to help others name and face evil with the resources of scripture and Christian community. Dr. Farrow teaches Old Testament at Northern Seminary and Jerusalem University, and it was my pleasure to have her join us on the podcast. So I'm joined now by a friend, Dr. Ingrid Farrow. She's an Old Testament scholar, a professor, and the author of a powerful new book, Demystifying Evil. Ingrid and I actually go back some 20 years to our seminary days. I think I was doing my MDiv, you were doing a PhD or starting a PhD, but we are in the same formation group. And so now it's, it's just amazing, two decades later, to have you on this podcast yeah, and it's so great. It's uh, so fun to be with you and actually to see how God has formed us in over these 20 years. And, and uh, that's really rich yeah. and so encouraging as well. Well, who knew? I mean, I knew that you were going to be a scholar in academia, but I had no idea I was going to be. So, you know, <laughs> the way the Lord works is surprising uh, sometimes. So let's talk about this book, which I, I greatly uh, enjoyed and learned from. And uh, the subtitle of the book is A Biblical and Personal Exploration of Evil. And that gets it right. I'm not sure I've quite read a book like this before. It combines scholarly reflection and there's these deeply personal narratives 
along with devotional direction that you give us in, in each chapter. And I appreciated this because it's very easy for us, uh, maybe I guess humans, but also for scholars in particular, to sort of compartmentalize our work and our life. And as I get older, I realize how much these two things inform each other. Uh, now, you have done a lot of really rigorous scholarly work on the topic of evil in the Bible. But as I read this book, it also became clear to me that it gave you space to work out and face um, the evil you've encountered in your personal life. And so I guess the question is how these two things inform each other, your scholarly work, uh, where you're down in the weeds, you know, working with these ancient texts, and then also your personal devotion, uh, how they inform each other and, and the heart behind the book and why it was so important for you as you discussed evil to combine um, research and narrative and spiritual direction. Yeah, such an important and and good question because the book truly is a a reflection of how the Lord led me to overcome and get healing from the traumas and abuses that I'd experienced in my own life because those were actually what led me to seminary in the first place. Mm. I had two prior careers, one in nutrition. I was an associate professor of nutrition. I used to be a dietitian, all that. And then I was in insurance because of family things that happened. I needed to earn more money. And, you know, and so, you know, of course, going to theology after those, you know, real logical <laughs> transition. But, yeah. but, but, uh, but it was because of the, the, the things that I had been through. And I didn't know if God was good. I didn't know if God loved me. I didn't know mm. if God was just. And mm. I had, I was in and out of church. I really did not want to talk to many Christians. So I was kind of deconstructing my faith before it became a term. Yeah. <laughs> but finally, there was a point where I knew God had gotten hold of me only in so far as for me to be able to hear, get answers for yourself. Mm. And, uh, and for me, to get answers from scripture, from the Greek and the Hebrew. So that meant a whole new line of study. And so I was still working in the insurance field during my entire MDiv degree and raising a family and things like that. But it was like, I had so many questions and I still had more questions, even more questions by the time I was done, because even more hardship had happened during those years. I thought, oh, surely now I'm going to be protected because I'm following God. Hmm. And instead, quite it seemed like almost the reverse happened. Things seemed to get worse. But also what has fueled me in writing this is in teaching in seminaries here these last, uh, whatever it's been now since uh, 2008. So, you know, it's getting, getting a few years and also continuing to be in touch with so many students uh, from the past who are really struggling and are questioning their faith. And some of them don't think, don't feel like, you know, don't, wouldn't consider themselves struggling, but struggling in terms of, uh, questioning God and so forth. And and I, I had a chance to reflect more on my own journey as people ask, well, how did you go through the things you did and end up still believing in God? And what was that journey like? And I realized how so often in the academy, we tend to segregate uh, the intellect and the intellectual right. pursuit of studying scripture from integrating it with our lives. So we'll have like we had at, at TED's, you know, formation groups, but they don't always form you. Mm. Uh, sometimes, you know, they're just social gatherings and so mm. forth. And then also my time teaching in Sweden, I, I uh, was there for a year teaching full-time, continued to volunteer teaching classes for a, a seminary there for um, for eight years. And working with European and international students as well, and, and just recognizing the, the detriment when we segregate just the, the intellectual study of Scripture, the scholarly study of mm -hmm. Scripture uh, from 
how does that intersect with our personal lives? Hmm. And so it became more and more the way that I would teach. So having a high level of scholarship, but also then, well, now what does that mean for me? Hmm. And so, but that's also why first I had to publish Evil in Genesis, the yeah. rewrite of my dissertation, because I had to show, okay, I've done the, I've done the, the academic sure. work. I've, I've, I've done that work. So if you have questions about this, go back and check that. But at the same time, really recognizing that that intellectual work was only going to reach a very small percentage of people mm. and people who mostly could read Hebrew. Although I've had a lot of people who don't know any Hebrew that have still worked their way through parts of it because it was still providing some kind of a groundwork for them as they were wrestling with their own stories. So yeah, that's that's a lot of the background of the book is this was how God taught me. Yeah, I'm wondering with the process of that, of writing a book, you know, a, a deeply scholarly work, and then now th this, which is more um, pastoral, what was that process like, that sort of dialectic going back and forth between a scholarly discussion of evil and then this very personal thing that you've, these personal things you've experienced? Did you have these moments where it was therapeutic to not have to think about evil directly? You could sort of get in sideways by thinking about it in the biblical text, or was it to do your research was necessarily to face uh, the evil that you had encountered. Does, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And th those last words that you used, facing the evil that I had experienced, that really became key because, you know, I quote N.T. Wright in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, where he says, most people tend to face evil in three ways. First, they don't expect it to happen. Second, when it does happen, it slaps them in the face. He said, therefore, third, they tend to respond in immature and dangerous ways. Mm. And that resonated so much with me and uh, most first world people um, who haven't experienced persecution and famines and things like that is that, you know, we, we and, and I look at the church also. Most of the, the, the churches in, you know, first world, they don't want to talk about evil. It's like, come to church and be happy, clappy. Right. And, you know, we don't want to hear about your problems. And that's why we give so many just pat, stupid answers mm -hmm. that do more harm than good. You know, it's like, well, you know, God's, in, God's in control and God need another little angel in heaven and things that don't help people at sure. all because they just want to be able to say something and make it go away. And it doesn't. Instead, it just drives it deeper. And so. Mm -hmm. That was also, you know, part of my goal is to avoid simplistic answers that we've got in order to heal from the things we've experienced. We have to face it. We have to name it. We mm. have to identify it. And that, and we have to be able to start looking at it with some degree of objectivity because evil, just like trauma, trauma completely leaves the, the, the cognitive process. It gets embedded in our fears and angers and so forth, you know. So that's why we talk about triggers that most, most of us tend to live by our triggers. Uh, no matter how brilliant, genius, intellectual and so forth we are, that tends to be the process. So it's, so this book is also um, intended to help us to face it, talk about it, provide a framework mm -hmm. so that we can start looking at the things that we've experienced objectively and not just subjectively or through our triggers or running away from them as so often the church has done. One of the reasons I'm asking this is because you know I'm writing about or trying to write about prayer at the moment, and I think to myself, am I mm -hmm. trying to avoid prayer by writing about <laughs> by writing about prayer? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And is yeah. is my scholarship yes. a way of of facing God or um, interacting with God or avoiding? And it can be both. 
And so I, I can imagine with a topic like evil, that that dynamic is is, is kind of fascinating. Um, so the topic of evil in the Bible is a huge one. And you ground your study in Genesis, which is part of your earlier work in your dissertation. Uh, but you also reflect on the way that these themes get developed over the course of the whole biblical story. So I wonder, uh, having done a lot of work on this, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions or most simplistic answers that we have about evil in the Bible, uh, in the Genesis story, or anywhere else? Yeah, one of the, uh, so much that's been written about evil has been written from a philosophical perspective. And uh, when I started going down the road and even selecting my dissertation topic, I thought for sure there'd be tons on this already done, hmm. tons of work on the, the Hebrew and, and so forth. And uh, from a biblical perspective, what does the Bible define as evil? And I could find very little. Hmm. So that was that was actually my first big surprise, wow. yeah. is that most, most of the writing on evil had been uh, from either a, you know either a sociological or anthropological in which there's no agreement in the general culture in any general culture on what is evil evil is determined by the culture and that shifts with the winds mm -hmm. and so just recognizing you know reading broadly on you know from moral philosophy to an atheist view of evil to you know everything mm -hmm. and uh, recognizing you know that there tends to not be an agreement on what is evil. We can certainly see that right now with, with world events, what people call evil and what people call good. And so often they're completely contradicting one another. So this is a dialogue that needs to take place, but it certainly should be taking place in the church where we do have mm. the Bible as a source that we can mine and really look at. So that was really my first surprise is that there was hmm. th that there weren't agreed upon definitions or even concepts of evil. And then the second is how um because it's been so much defined by philosophy, we tend to make it simplistic and very humanistic as well. But in one of my big surprises in Genesis was, uh, of course, I expected in Genesis that good and evil would be two of the main word groups that would play against each other. But what I didn't realize until I did the work that there's another word group that occurs with the word evil more often than the word good. So good occurs with evil up to 40% of the time in hmm. Genesis. But this other word group occurs over two thirds of the time. And that is words that have to do with sight. And that is so interesting. And, and we think of even in Genesis one, and God saw that right. was good, yeah. saw that it was good. So that sevenfold repetition. And then that same syntax, the next time you see that same sentence structure and occurring is in Genesis three, after the serpent tempts the woman and says, no, no, let's, let's look at this one tree, this one thing God told you is going to harm, do you harm, is going to kill you. And he convinces her that, no, this is good. And she looks at it and she saw that the tree was good to make her wise. Mm. So now she's seeing something differently than God is seeing it because mm. God saw that tree and said, this is going to surely bring you death. You will surely die. And now she says, oh no, now it'll surely be, it is surely good and desirable. Hmm. And then the next time you see that same sentence structure is in Genesis 6 at the beginning when the sons of God saw that the, the daughters of Adam were good. And it actually uses hmm. that word good. It's usually translated beautiful. And so here these spiritual entities are seeing something and then they took for themselves. So the woman, she saw that it was good for, to make her wise and took. Now these B'nai Elohim, sons of God, are seeing these human women 
that they are good and taking of them for themselves also. Mm. And so this seeing and taking continues to play in Genesis and through the rest of scripture as well. So for example, uh, the book of Judges ends with, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. Mm. And we see every king, just about every king in uh, Kings and Chronicles assessed at the end of their reign as to whether they did what was right in the eyes of God or evil in the eyes of God. And so that the whole concept of sight, how do we see? Are we seeing things according to God's perspective or according to, well, this looks good to me. Hmm. And of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was exactly meant to, it was that we have two choices, obey and trust God that he's good and providing all that we need, or no, maybe God isn't good. Maybe I really can't hmm. trust him. Maybe he's withholding goodness from me. So I better go and see what's good for me and take it for myself because mm-hmm. God's not really good or trustworthy. And that becomes the the defining difference between what is good and what is evil from a biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. So that really changed how I view what I'm doing is what I'm doing good or bad and what the determining factor as a follower of Jesus, is this how God sees it? Or is this just simply how I'm seeing it or how the world's seeing it? What's influencing the way that I see and how I determine what is good or bad? Mm. Because we all know, like, you know, for example, the book, uh, Helping That Hurts, you know, we all know that people could do, quote, good things that are actually causing more harm. And so, but it can look good. It can look benevolent and so forth. But sometimes we're causing more harm because, well, it looks good to me, mm. but how does it look to God? So that, mm. Those were a couple of my my big initial takeaways, and then I just continued to learn from there. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I have all sorts of questions that have now sprung to my mind as a result of that. Uh, and here's and here's one. This may be a bit a bit off script. You know, in, in the reform, so I, we're, I'm in the reform tradition, the Protestant tradition. We have a tendency to play off the eyes against the ears a bit. Um, you know, we tend to be more suspicious of the visual. Uh, and tend to be more accepting of the auditory, you know, of that that which we hear. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what my question is here, but but is is there anything there in terms of a suspicion of the visual over against the verbal, uh, or over against you know the promise of God vers- versus mm-hmm. the what we see for ourselves? It seems clear that there that evil has to do with a a willful misperception, perhaps of mm-hmm. of the world. Yes, uh, I don't know. What, what do you any, do? You have any yeah. thoughts on that? I do. Yeah, I do. And first, you know, we think of, um, you know, the auditory and, and all the times that, like, for example, the, the speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy are framed around hero Israel. Mm-hmm. So, and the word here is the word listen. Mm-hmm. And in Hebrew, the word listen, Shema, if you have a, a particular uh, preposition after it, it means to obey. So, for example, I used to tell my, my children, if you hear what I'm saying, and if you actually hear what I'm saying, you will obey what I'm saying, because from the Hebrew, it it's hmm. comes from the same word. One just has a preposition that you're going to do something about what you hear. Um, but the sight, uh, when we think of, I've done some little bit of studies when I was working on my dissertation, especially on uh, cognitive behavior. And one of the, the very first cognitive connections are between seeing and knowing, oh, let's see what's in this box. Oh, hmm. let's see. Let's take, let's see what, hmm. you know, and seeing and knowing are intimately connected. So here the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is connected with sight and how are you going to see? And even the uh, the her, their eyes were opened yeah. and in uh, the uh, 
ancient Mesopotamian and Greek um, rituals of, of making an idol into a god was first the washing of the mouth ceremony, the opening of the mouth ceremony. Hmm. But then there was a final ritual that was commonly done called the opening of the eye ceremony. And that Mm. opening of the eye ceremony is what made the idol a god. Mm. And so it was a divinization process. And so when even so in the ancient world, when they read their eyes were open, it was like, oh, they wanted to be gods. Mm. So that that understanding is what were the what, what was it that the man and woman wanted? They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to be gods rather than listen and obey God. They wanted to see things, know, see and know things from their own perspective Mm. rather than hearkening to, listening to God and obeying Mm. what he had to say. And so, yeah, the eyes, the way we see and the way we perceive things uh, directly impacts our mind and our knowledge base. And it's our mind that's the turning pivot between which way am I going to go? Hmm. What is the path I'm going to take? And so it's our mind becomes just like Romans. I'm thinking right now, suddenly of Romans 12, one, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve Mm -hmm. what is good, that the good Mm -hmm. and acceptable will of God. Yeah. The other thing it made me think of as I was reading your book is that the way that idols are described throughout throughout scripture in Psalm 115 and other places that they have eyes but do not see. And I thought that was really ironic that, you know, there's this sort of opening of the eyes ceremony and the man and the woman want, wish to become divine in some sense to to become autonomous. And yet idols are consistently described as having visual faculties that do not work or actually all of their faculties do not actually work and those who make them become like them. So I wonder if there's anything anything there as well that, you know, this sort of this ironic trade, you know, that you're trying to get more and you actually become less. Yeah. And we certainly hear that in the words of Jesus also, when he's opening the eyes of the blind and when he's talking to the Pharisees, who those were the people that really knew the Torah. They knew scripture. They were the experts in scripture, which is also one of the things that really hit me is that those who knew scripture best saw the least. Mm. He says, you are blind guides. Mm. And uh, because they... They thought they saw, but they were blind. Mm. And so that also became real interesting is how do I, how do I see? Am I seeing, am I walking humbly before God and asking, help me to see things your way? So one of my regular prayers, for example, has become, Lord, show me what I need to know. Help me to see things your way. So whether Mm. it's world events, uh, family events, conversations, things that happen in the workplace, it's always, you know, the, the tendency is we look at things and we, we decide, oh, is this good or bad? Is this right or wrong? And, and, but now it's like, Lord, how do you see this? Hmm. Help me to see this through your eyes so that I can assess it rightly hmm. and not just lean on my own understanding. Yeah, that's good. Let me ask you one more uh, Genesis question, then we'll get to some pastoral responses to evil. Uh, and the question is, I guess the question I often get asked as I teach undergraduates about the Genesis account, uh, almost always I'll have at the end of the semester and ask anything where they can write down questions anonymously. And then I pick them out of a, a basket and try to answer them to the best of my ability. And almost always I can count on the fact that there's going to be a question that's something like, why does God even put this tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Or why does God even allow evil in, allow the serpent in to roam freely? Isn't that sort of setting uh, Adam and Eve up to fail? And I always try to answer the question, but I'm 
yeah, I'm curious to pose it to you as, as a person who's done a lot of work on this. Uh, how would you explain that to, to us or to undergraduate students of how do we explain the, both the test of the tree in the garden as well as the presence of the serpent? Yeah, so that's so the, the first, uh, why put two trees there in the first place? Um, and so those two trees represent moral choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they represent either the choice to, to trust in the character, trust in God and in his character, trust what he has said, or to decide to trust ourselves instead, or some other entity, mm-hmm. something else. And um, I, I love uh, Phyllis Lapsley had written about this, and, and she, she said it really well in uh, Whispering the Word. We are moral creatures. We are created in God's image. We are not robots. We are not automatrons. We're not, you know, AI computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have an ability to be creative and to have thoughts that are independently our own thoughts separate from God. And before we were created, there were spiritual entities that also had that capacity. And so scripture uses different names because there are different kinds of spiritual entities. And I include some chapters in my book about these spiritual entities mm-hmm. as well. And uh, with, you know, again, lots of resources um, as well as just the scriptural references, lots of scholarly work on that too. So even before humanity was created, God created these spiritual beings that also had, uh, were, were granted an autonomy. Mm. So us being moral creatures, without, without being able to have choice, we would not be moral creatures. And so that is it. Those two trees represent the two most basic simple choices that we have uh, as human beings to trust and follow God or to trust our own instincts. And so that is, that is the core. Um, And then also the, the fact of the serpent. One of the things that sometimes is overlooked is in Genesis 2 15, when uh, God tells the Adam to serve and protect the garden. Serve and protect it. And those two words, avad and shamar, um, so serve and guard or protect, watch over. When those two words are used together, they're only used together in priestly contexts. Mm. And so the job of the priests was to serve and protect sacred space. Mm. And so serve it, you know, take care of it keep it going, you know, be, be stewards of it, but also protect it from defilement, protect it from pollution. And so even there, the fact that even in Genesis 2, there's already set up a warning that there is something that the humans in the garden are supposed to be protecting. Hmm. They're supposed to protect it from, from pollution. So the serpent comes in and they failed that responsibility. Hmm. And so that is what the serpent represents. And that is how the serpent got in because we failed. And that's what we continue to do. We tend to fail in our responsibility to serve and protect God and sacred space, uh, his people and his will. And so that is how evil gains entrance is because we do not understand our responsibility, which was given in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as well as in chapter 2, and we don't understand 
our authority that he gave us. So when Christ came, he regained, it says in in 1 John 5, that the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, And we see throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, all of this spiritual conflict language. You know, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Mm -hmm. And so he was taking authority over those powers and principalities. And then by him giving up his life, by him living perfectly. So every day in the life of Jesus was important. Certainly the cross we understand is the ultimate act, but the ultimate act of him being able to die for our sins because every day of his life, he was making choices to only obey God. And um, I, I like Michael Heiser said, every day of his life, was an assault against the powers of darkness. Mm. And if we were to look at our lives like that, as every day in our life is an assault against the powers of darkness saying, I'm not going to yield to you. I am going to uphold God's name Mm. and his standards and his word, and I'm going to follow God. Mm. And so we, we, don't fully understand what it actually means to be a human being mm-hmm. as God intends and created us, and especially one that is born again and who Jesus has given us his authority to go to all nations in his name. And in his name means in his authority, mm-hmm. representing him. So if we really, so that's, that's, that became my goal as I learned to recognize what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And what does it mean that Christ restored that for us? And so that became my goal for the rest of my life to move closer and closer to that goal of, of lifting up his name faithfully and having the incredible joy of seeing God at work mm. in and through my life. Mm. Thank you for that. What, what a wonderful summary of the biblical storyline and answer to that to that question that students stumble over. Uh, I wonder if we could shift, as I said, towards pastoral response. So three questions in the line of pastoral response. So early in the book, you write, I came to realize that facing and naming the evil as evil was an important step in restoration from evil. So naming, facing the evil. And I'm sure, or I hope most people would say amen to that. Uh, my question is about when it's appropriate to name other people as evil. Um, and we could talk about call out culture or cancel culture. But I'm thinking about um, our last podcast guest was David French, and he was giving us a warning about politics. Mm-hmm. This is an election year uh, that we are in now. Mm-hmm. And he noted that there's been this shift from saying the other side politically is wrong to saying, well, the other side is not just wrong, they're evil. And he said that makes it really hard to treat people with respect because you don't respect evil. You defeat evil, right? And so if we you know, place this against the backdrop of the spiritual warfare conversation uh, that we've been having, when other people stand in for that conflict, it can be really hard to treat them as people who have dignity as fellow image bearers. So I wonder what counsel you'd give us uh, when it comes to facing and naming evil uh, in its human forms while also holding on to the dignity of our fellow image bearers. Yeah, it's uh, I have uh, in the chapter two of my book, a little section on the misuse of evil. And when people start calling other people evil, mm-hmm. uh, th- that can get pretty dicey uh, because you first have to start with understanding that every human being is created in the image of God and that God gave his life for. And as Jesus said, however you treat the very least of these, mm-hmm 
Mm. It's how you treat me. And so recognizing that the way we treat others and the way we allow others to treat us, God takes it personally. So that has to be foundational Mm. before we start going around name calling. Mm. So certainly there are people who give themselves over to evil, and that has to be acknowledged as well. And yet I am seeing more and more uh, videos and testimonies and uh, hearing stories of people who were jihadists, some who were at Hezbollah. And um, and uh, I'm waiting to hear uh, from Hamas also. Well, we know the story, like, for example, son of Hamas. So people who who were complicit and carrying out the most horrific kinds of evil that we can imagine and some who've come to Christ and turned their lives around and are now on fire for seeing people come to the love of God. And so it's, so we, we have to recognize that as long as a person is alive, there is hope for Hmm. that person to become transformed, to become born again. Hmm. We have to really understand born again really is that they become a new creature all things are made new. Um, I know my late husband had been a horrible, and, and he, he had fully admitted he had been a horrible human being. He had been a mercenary, and um, he came to Christ. You know, He had spent 20 years of his life uh, after Vietnam involved in uh, terrorist and am- training terrorist and ambush teams and so forth. But he had a dramatic encounter with God and came to Christ and made it his goal to become a good man. But so the churches, some of the churches we went to, as soon as he would share his testimony, would become afraid and we would end up having to leave the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, And instead of embracing and loving him and helping see him discipled into the fullness of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now, no matter who I meet and whoever I talk to, it's like, Lord, help me to see your fingerprint on that person and help me to love them as you love them. Now, sometimes we need to set boundaries. Sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. we have to obviously, you know, Jesus. Jesus also said, be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. So we have to be wise about that. But that's why naming evil should be naming an activity, not a person. Hmm. Uh, It should be naming something, a belief. Hmm. It should be naming something that is causing stealing, killing, and destroying. You know, Satan is the liar and the father of lies. He does accuse the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees, of of being, you know, uh, of their father, the devil. You know, when they're trying to kill him and defame him and so forth. So he, Jesus, doesn't hesitate to call them whitewashed walls and so forth. But he's calling out their hypocrisy, and and it's always with the goal of repentance, because we do know some of the Pharisees did follow Christ, Joseph and Nicodemus and so forth. At least had some modicum of faith in. Christ. Certainly Joseph did. Hmm. But again, facing and naming evil, it's, you know, we can't covering it over, uh, being able to, to just say, okay, this is what happened to me. And this was not right. Uh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Hmm. Uh, I love Cornelius Plantica's book, you know, not the way it's supposed to be a breviary of sin. Mm-hmm. So, um, and moral philosopher, uh, Susan Neiman says that when we're, when things are not the way they're supposed to be, we recognize we're entering into the problem of evil. So when we have a sense of things are, this is not how it's supposed to be, then we should stop and say, all right, um, this, something is wrong here. And in understanding evil, it also has become so important in my studies, in my process to understand what is good and what does God and scripture call good, Mm -hmm. because we have to know what is good and who is good 
also in order to define mm-hmm. what is evil. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I spend some time in the book and, and also, especially in my research on what are the words associated with good and goodness, uh, so that we can more clearly make a distinction between good, flourishing, blessing, abundance, peace, uh, harmony. Again, just, you know, there's, there are these words that are so beauty associated with goodness and those are contrary. And even in Genesis, there's the, the categories of goodness are matched as antonyms, just the opposite of the categories of evil. So you can actually match them up and see, okay, categories of goodness, categories of evil. Mm -hmm. And so just being able to do that so we no longer confuse, well, maybe this, maybe this really is good when no. Let's let's work on defining things. Mm. Yeah, one of the major points that you make that's related to this is taking responsibility for ourselves and our response to evil. Uh, you write about the need to face the evil in ourselves, the ways we've allowed evil to overcome us by giving birth to hatred or bitterness. So we need to take responsibility for how we respond to evil. But that's easier said than done, um, as you know. And so how do we acknowledge the ways we've been wronged, which you, you've mentioned already, but not become defined by it mm-hmm. in the same way that we don't want to define others by their worst attributes or their worst moments? Uh, how do we also not become defined by the wrongs that have been done to us? And I imagine there's probably listeners to this podcast who have suffered evil at the hands of others, and they need to name it as such that it's evil. And so what would you want mm-hmm. them to know? Yeah, one of one of my big goals in this book also is for people to to be in the process or at least begin the process of healing. And um and some of that is just I I have met people who have been running from God for 20 years because they were afraid God was going to bang them over the head or they were going to be rejected by people because of the quote the sin that they did and and so um and also those who've been running because they have been so, I mean, just the, the horrendous evils of uh, the stories that, of course, I regularly hear because there's hardly a time that I talk to a group of people that someone doesn't come forward frequently for the first time to talk mm. about an evil that had been done to them uh, that they had never spoken about and it that has crippled their whole life. And so we need to f- be able to find safe places to begin to talk about the things that we have suffered and the things that people have done to us. Because as long as it festers inside of us, it just, it, it deteriorates us. Um, I, I consider it like an abscess, you know, it, it's, it can cover it over with, it, you know, this deep wound can be covered over with what appears on the outside to be healthy skin. But meanwhile, it's just eating away. We can see it so often by the, by the triggers, the things that make us angry or bitter or hurt or, and so forth. And so when I've come in my life, whenever I see myself uh, have a, a, an overreaction to a situation, I've now learned, I just step back and say, okay, what's this attached to? What is the root of this? Hmm. What, what what unhealed wound is there in my life and um and we can find healing to at least begin the process and if you don't trust god then find 
somebody who you can trust. It's I remember when uh, my son was younger and he said I can share anything about his story, but um, he had dropped out of high school because of the hardships that we had been through and his dad taking his life when he was 11 and financial losses and all kinds of other things. Um, he had gotten angry and run away from God, dropped out of school, moved out of the house when he was still a teenager and was just completely you know, just so angry, did not cry, tried to become as hard and cold as he could. And um, when he went, began the process of wanting to heal, he said, I'm not ready to trust God yet. And, you know, I remember saying, you know, can you trust me? And he mm. said, yes. So I said, well, you hold on to me as I'm holding on to God. Mm. And so sometimes we're we're that person, or sometimes we have to find that person that we can hold on to that's willing to be that safe person for us mm. and when we're not yet ready to trust God because and that's okay. And even being honest with God. You know, I look at the 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 major groupings of Psalms are the lament Psalms because God knows that life is hard and we question how long, oh Lord, and why and all of these things. So there's there's language for that. God does not uh, he understands that we're in pain and he wants to come and walk alongside with us. But if we're not ready to even let him into that space to begin by finding someone that we can just begin to open up to hmm. that, that will be safe and that we'll see the hope, the possibility of hope for, for something better ahead for us. Hmm. Another thing that you note is that facing evil means acknowledging our complicity in evil and I confess that maybe like some of our listeners, I find that kind of overwhelming, uh, especially in a time when we are so digitally connected to injustices happening on the other side of the world. It feels paralyzing um, to say nothing of what happens in our backyard or ecological degradation, all, all of these sorts of things. And so I wonder, in a world that feels so brutal and broken so many times, uh, how do we find the resources to not be overwhelmed we're overcome by evil uh, when it's so easy, when we just turn on the news or pick up our phones, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Yeah, and especially our digital age where we can, 24 hours a day, we can be watching the most horrible things happening in the whole world. Uh, things have always been, horrible things have always been happening in the world. And I've read many different st statistics that say that actually the world is safer now than it's ever been. But how can we believe that? Because we can just open up any social media and watch watch clips and reruns of clips and mm -hmm. so forth. So I have found um, that sometimes I, I, I need to limit the amount of media that I watch and listen to. Um, I have to limit it to the morning because otherwise I won't sleep at night. Mm. Um, and, uh, but then also important with that is like, Lord, show me what's happening within my immediate world that I have influence over and help me to focus on what is it that I can do. So I'll, I'll look at a, a variety of perspectives, but I can only look at so much of it. And then I have to turn and say, okay, Lord, show me what you want me to be praying for, mm. but also what is it that I can do? What is the mission that you have for me? And it may seem insignificant. So like I love, for example, one of the stories that I love so much is the beginning of Exodus. So I'll use a, a biblical story for real life, but this it's, again, it's, it's written to help us understand. You know, you look at the story, the beginning of Exodus, and here you have this slave population 
in Egypt and things are getting worse and worse for them. And they're, they're just slaves, you know, to the Egyptians, they're just slaves. But here you see two women who become willing to midwives and whose names were given, who are willing to stand up to the head of the greatest empire at that time and, and basically lie to him to save the lives of others. And God honors that. Mm-hmm. And then you have a mother and her daughter and the Pharaoh's daughter, as well as these, these midwives who risk their lives to save slave baby boys, this little slave baby boy that would have been insignificant at that time. Nobody would have thought anything. This was just a little slave baby boy, but it took, it was these five women who, saved Moses so that he could become the savior of the nation. So, Hmm. so often things we may think of, oh, that's not going to make any difference. Oh, I'm insignificant. Never. There's nothing Hmm. that we do that God hasn't instructed us to do or put in our heart to do that is insignificant. Hmm. I, I do appreciate the Jewish saying that saving one life is saving the world. Mm. And and if we have that as a perspective, mm. that being kind to one person today, mm. it's making a difference in that person's life. So what can I do today to to give goodness, to stop evil? Is it at the grocery store saying a kind word, you know, just praying for the person who just cut me off in traffic because it's like, Lord, whatever that person's going through, help them. Our prayers matter as well as our actions. So I think it's important to limit uh, what we watch, but also say, Lord, what do you have for me to do? Mm-hmm. What is your mission through me today? Because he has something for every one of us. Mm. Man, it's so rich. And this book is so accessible. And I commend it to all of our listeners to pick it up. And uh, hopefully you've got a bit of a taste here. I'm going to finish by reading a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book, and then I'll give Ingrid the last word if there's anything else uh, you want to say afterwards. So this is from early in the book you write, The Bible doesn't ask what is evil or why did it happen because it's a given. Rather, it seems to ask, how will we, how will I, how will you respond to evil whenever it strikes in whatever form it takes? Will we let evil define us, overtake us? Will we let bitterness, resentment, or hatred distort our behavior? Or will we master them and work in cooperation with God to overcome and reverse the devastations of evil with good? Any other word you want to give to us? Ingrid, to add to that. I just want to encourage everybody to be bold, take a small step, and each of us every day just to take a small step toward um, asking God, show me what I need to know. Show me what I need to know. And to move toward healing and wholeness in our lives so that we can spread it to others. The book is Demystifying Evil, a Biblical and Personal Exploration from IVP Academic. Our guest is its author, Dr. Ingrid Farrow. Ingrid, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks so much. Great to see you after these 20 years. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing this podcast with others. Thanks again for tuning in.